Volume Two, Chapter Eleventh of The Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Eleventh. What is the secret sin, this untold tale, that art cannot extract nor penance cleanse? Her muscles hold their place, nor discomposed nor formed to steadiness, no sudden flushing and no faltering lip. Mysterious Mother The coffin had been borne from the place where it rested, the mourners in regular gradation, according to their rank or their relationship to the deceased, had filed from the cottage, while the younger male children were led along to totter after the bier of their brother, and to view with wonder a ceremonial which they could hardly comprehend. The female gossips next rose to depart, and with consideration for the situation of the parents, carried along with them the girls of the family, to give the unhappy pair time and opportunity to open their hearts to each other, and soften their grief by communicating it. But their kind intention was without effect. The last of them had darkened the entrance of the cottage, as she went out, and drawn the door softly behind her, when the father, first ascertaining by a hasty glance that no stranger remained, started up, clasped his hands wildly above his head, uttered a cry of the despair which he had hitherto repressed, and, in all the impotent impatience of grief, half rushed, half staggered forward, to the bed on which the coffin had been deposited, threw himself down upon it, and smothering, as it were, his head among the bedclothes, gave vent to the full passion of his sorrow. It was in vain that the wretched mother, terrified by the vehemence of her husband's affliction, affliction still more fearful, as agitating a man of hardened manners and a robust frame, suppressed her own sobs and tears, and, pulling him by the skirts of his coat, implored him to rise and remember that, though one was removed, he had still a wife and children to comfort and support. The appeal came at too early a period of his anguish, and was totally unattended to. He continued to remain prostrate, indicating by sobs so bitter and violent that they shook the bed and partition against which it rested, by clenched hands which grasped the bedclothes, and by the vehement and convulsive motion of his legs. How deep and how terrible was the agony of a father's sorrow! Hoy, what a day is this! What a day is this! said the poor mother, her womanish affliction, already exhausted by sobs and tears, and now almost lost in terror for the state in which she beheld her husband. Oh, what an hour is this! Had naebody to help a poor lone woman! Hoy, good mother, could you but speak a word to him? Would you but bid him be comforted? To her astonishment, and even to the increase of her fear, her husband's mother heard and answered the appeal. She rose and walked across the floor without support, and without much apparent feebleness, and standing by the bed on which her son had extended himself, she said, Rise up, my son, and sorrow not for him that is beyond sin and sorrow and temptation. Sorrows for those that remain in this veil of sorrow and darkness. Hi, what done a sorrow? 
and would kind of serve for any ane. I must need that ye should aye serve for me. The voice of his mother, not heard for years as taking part in the active duties of life, or offering advice or consolation, produced its effect upon her son. He assumed a sitting posture on the side of the bed, and his appearance, attitude, and gestures changed from those of angry despair to deep grief and dejection. The grandmother retired to her nook. The mother mechanically took in her hand her tattered Bible, and seemed to read, though her eyes were drowned with tears. They were thus occupied, when a loud knock was heard at the door. "'Hey, sirs,' said the poor mother, "'why is it that can be coming at the gate now? They can I heard of our misfortune, I'm sure.' The knock being repeated, she rose and opened the door, saying querulously, "'When a gate set to disturb a sorrowful house?' A tall man in black stood before her, whom she instantly recognized to be Lord Glenallan. "'Is there not,' he said, "'an old woman lodging in this, or one of the neighboring cottages, called Elsbeth, who was long resident at Craigburnfoot of Glenallan?' "'It's me good mother, my lord,' said Margaret, "'but she canna see anybody now. Hoin, we're dreeing a sight weird. We have had a heavy dispensation.' "'God forbid,' said Lord Glenallan, "'that I should on light occasion disturb your sorrow. "'But my days are numbered. "'Your mother-in-law is in the extremity of age, "'and if I see her not to-day, "'we may never meet on this side of time.' "'And what?' answered the desolate mother. "'Would you see an eyed woman, "'broken down with age and sorrow and heartbreak? "'Gentle or simple, "'shall not darken my door the day "'my barn's been carried out a corpse.' While she spoke thus, indulging the natural irritability of disposition and profession, which began to mingle itself with her grief, when its first uncontrolled bursts were gone by, she held the door about one-third part open, and placed herself in the gap, as if to render the visitor's entrance impossible. But the voice of her husband was heard from within. "'Why's that, Maggie? What for are ye staking them out? Let them come in.' It does not signify an old rope's end why comes in or why goes out of this house for this time forward. The woman stood aside at her husband's command and permitted Lord Glenallan to enter the hut. The dejection exhibited in his broken frame and emaciated countenance formed a strong contrast with the effects of grief, as they were displayed in the rude and weather-beaten visage of the fisherman and the masculine features of his wife. He approached the old woman as she was seated on her usual settle, and asked her, in a tone as audible as his voice could make it, "'Are you Elsbeth of the Craigburnfoot of Glenallan?' "'Why is it that asks about the unhallowed residence of that evil woman?' was the answer returned to his query. "'The unhappy Earl of Glenallan.' "'Earl? Earl of Glenallan!' "'He who was called William Lord Geraldine,' said the Earl, "'and whom his mother's death has made Earl of Glenallan.' "'Open the pole,' said the old woman firmly and hastily to her daughter-in-law. "'Open the pole with speed, that I may see if this be the right Lord Geraldine, 
the son of my mistress, him that I received in my arms within the hour after he was born, him that has reason to curse me that I did not smother him before the hour was past. The window, which had been shut in order that a gloomy twilight might add to the solemnity of the funeral meeting, was opened as she commanded, and threw a sudden and strong light through the smoky and misty atmosphere of the stifling cabin. Falling in a stream upon the chimney, the rays illuminated, in the way that Rembrandt would have chosen, the features of the unfortunate nobleman, and those of the old Sibyl, who now, standing upon her feet and holding him by one hand, peered anxiously in his features, with her light blue eyes, and holding her long and withered forefinger within a small distance of his face, moved it slowly as if to trace the outlines and reconcile what she recollected with that she now beheld. As she finished her scrutiny, she said with a deep sigh, It's a sire, sire change. And whose fault is it? But that's written down where it will be remembered. It's written on tablets of brass with a pen of steel, where all is recorded that is done in the flesh. And what? She said after a pause, What is Lord Geraldine seeking from a poor old creature like me that's dead already? and only belongs sae far to the living that she is not yet laid in the moulds nay answered lord glenallan in the name of heaven why was it that you requested so urgently to see me and why did you back your request by sending a token which you knew well i dared not refuse as he spoke thus he took from his purse the ring which eddie ochiltree had delivered to him at glenallan house the sight of this token produced a strange and instantaneous effect upon the old woman. The palsy of fear was immediately added to that of age, and she began instantly to search her pockets with the tremulous and hasty agitation of one who becomes first apprehensive of having lost something of great importance. Then, as if convinced of the reality of her fears, she turned to the earl and demanded, "'And how came you by it, then?' How came you by it? I thought I had kept it sae securely. What will the countess say? You know, said the earl, at least you must have heard, that my mother is dead. Dead? Are you no imposing upon me? Has she left I at last? Lands and lordship and lineages. All, all, said the earl, as mortals must leave all human vanities. I mind now, answered Elspeth. I heard of it before, but there has been sick distress in our house since, and my memory is sae muckle impaired. But ye are sure your mother, the Lady Countess, is going home? The Earl again assured her that her former mistress was no more. Then, said Elspeth, it shall burden my mind nigh longer. When she lived, why dared speak? What it would I displeased her, to I had noised abroad. But she's gone, and I will confess all. Then turning to her son and daughter-in-law, she commanded them imperatively to quit the house, and leave Lord Geraldin, for so she still called him, alone with her. But Maggie Mucklebackett, her first burst of grief being over, was by no means disposed in her own house to pay passive obedience 
to the commands of her mother-in-law, an authority which is peculiarly obnoxious to persons in her rank of life, and which she was the more astonished at hearing revived, when it seemed to have been so long relinquished and forgotten. "'It was an uncouth thing,' she said, in a grumbling tone of voice, for the rank of Lord Glenallan was somewhat imposing. "'It was an uncouth thing to bid a mother leave her ain house with the tear in her eye, the moment her eldest son had been carried a corpse out of the door it. The fisherman, in a stubborn and sullen tone, added to the same purpose. "'This is nigh day for your hide-word stories, mother. My lord, if he be a lord, may cry some other day. We may speak out what he has gotten to say if he likes it. There's nine here will think it worth their while to listen to him or you either. But neither for laird or loon, gentle or simple, will I leave my own house to pleasure anybody on the very day of my poor—' Here his voice choked, and he could proceed no farther, but as he had risen when Lord Glenallan came in, and had since remained standing, he now threw himself doggedly upon his seat, and remained in the sullen posture of one who was determined to keep his word. But the old woman, whom this crisis seemed to repossess in all those powers of mental superiority, with which she had once been eminently gifted, arose, and, advancing towards him, said with a solemn voice, "'My son, as you would shun hearing of your mother's shame, as you would not willingly be a witness of her guilt, as you would deserve her blessing and avoid her curse, I charge ye, by the body that bore and that nursed ye, to leave me at freedom to speak with Lord Geraldin, what nigh mortal ears but his ain mun listen to.' Obey my words, that when ye lay the moulds on my head, and, oh, that that day were come, ye may remember this hour without the reproach of having disobeyed the last earthly command that ever your mother warred on ye. The terms of this solemn charge revived in the fisherman's heart the habit of instinctive obedience in which his mother had trained him up, and to which he had submitted implicitly, while her powers of exacting it remained entire. The recollection mingled also with the prevailing passion of the moment, for glancing his eye at the bed on which the dead body had been laid, he muttered to himself, "'He never disobeyed me, in reason or out reason, and what for should I vex her?' Then, taking his reluctant spouse by the arm, he led her gently out of the cottage and latched the door behind them as he left it. As the unhappy parents withdrew, Lord Glenallan, to prevent the old woman from relapsing into her lethargy, again pressed her on the subject of the communication which she proposed to make to him. "'You'll have it said enough,' she replied. "'My mind's clear enough now, and there's not—I think there's not—a chance of my forgetting what I have to say. My dwelling at Craigburnfoot is before my eyne as it were present in reality. The green bank, with its selvage, just where the burn met with the sea. The twy little barks, with their sails furled, lying in the natural cove which it formed. The high cliff that joined it with the pleasure-grounds of the house of Glenallan, and hung right o'er the stream. Ah, yes, I may forget that I had a husband, and have lost him, that I but ain alive, 
of our forefire sons, that misfortune upon misfortune was devoured our ill-gotten wealth, that they carried the corpse of my son's eldest born fry the house this morning. But I never can forget the days I spent at Bonnie Craigburnfoot. You were a favorite of my mother, said Lord Glenallan, desirous to bring her back to the point from which she was wandering. I was, I was. Ye nanna mind me o' that. She brought me up among my station, and with knowledge more than my fellows. But, like the tempter of Eid, with the knowledge of good, she taught me the knowledge of evil. For God's sake, Elspeth, said the astonished Earl, proceed if you can to explain the dreadful hints you have thrown out. I well know you are confidant to one dreadful secret which should split this roof even to hear it named. But speak on farther. I will, she said, I will. Just bear with me for a little. And again, she seemed lost in recollection, but it was no longer tinged with imbecility or apathy. She was now entering upon the topic which had long loaded her mind, and which doubtless often occupied her whole soul, at times, when she seemed dead to all around her. And I may add, as a remarkable fact, that such was the intense operation of mental energy upon her physical powers and nervous system, that notwithstanding her infirmity of deafness, each word that Lord Glenallan spoke during this remarkable conference, although in the lowest tone of horror or agony, fell as full and distinct upon Elspeth's ear as it could have done at any period of her life. She spoke also herself clearly, distinctly and slowly, as if anxious that the intelligence she communicated should be fully understood. Concisely, at the same time, and with none of the verbiage or circumlocutory additions natural to those of her sex and condition. In short, her language bespoke a better education, as well as an uncommonly firm and resolved mind, and a character of that sort from which great virtues or great crimes may be naturally expected. The tenor of her communication is disclosed in the following chapter. End chapter 11th